0: Hey, listen in, listen real quick. I need your attention, guys. If you haven't signed up for the Triple Whale Partner Program, you are so missing out. 20% on all the leads that are driving for you, plus all the support and need you can possibly manage it. Welcome back. Agency Algorithm listeners, my name is Nick Shockfort, as always, and we are not joined by Joshua Kobayashi, Joshua Johnson. He is actually having an incredible event this weekend at a Hydra Council, so he's getting a bunch of agency owners together. I'm sure he's going to spread the good word about agency owners, but today we have an incredible conversation, something that I've been wanting to have on this podcast for quite a while, just to think about the future, what you could do if you build a good business and what you could do potentially if you're ready to maybe exit or sell that business And so I'm extremely, extremely thankful for David Thelma to jump on and talk about us. David, how are you doing, brother? I'm well, Nick. It's nice to be with you and your listeners. Of course. Please
1: give us a little bit of background on yourself and the team that you lead over there, LF. So I do come from an advertising family. My dad owned an outdoor advertising. I started, owned, and sold two marketing agencies. There was a pathway that led me to doing exit planning and M&A work for agency owners. When I had an agency or niche or specialty, I was working with financial advisors who wanted to be in front of business owners on a favorable basis. So my team and I, we came up with the idea that the best hook, the best door opener would be to position those financial advisors as specialists in exit planning and succession planning. And it worked. That's what business owners wanted to talk about. So that was in the nineties. That experience entrenched me into these concepts of M&A work, exit planning. I sold that agency and then I bumped into a business owner. I couldn't help myself. I'd say to them, Nick, what's your exit plan? And that's what they wanted to talk about. So that's really why I got started in 2010, helping agency owners with exit plans. It evolved into an MA advisory group, where not only do we plan for them, we help them monetize what we're Today, our group, we have N people, and we work with agency owners throughout the country.
0: This is probably one of the most interesting areas of topics, because, look, when people started agencies, you know, it was a really cool thing to do, and then COVID hit, and then and everyone was like, well, everyone's remote anyway, so why don't I just... You know, start a service. I, I don't want to start a physical product. I want to start an online service thing. And they don't really know that what it takes to get to the finish line to, to build there. And when you're going through a lot of these deals, these, a lot of these partners, are the red flags or things that you're trying to, before they approach you, right? When before they're getting to that mindset of, I, I think it's time to sell, what does that timeline look like? Because on your most recent acquisition that happened just a little bit ago, the uh, this woman, she, engage with you seven months before the actual uh, process was beginning, is that a normal timeline?
1: It it is. The decision, as you and your listeners can appreciate, it's such an important decision when to sell, how to sell, who are they going to sell to. It takes time to prepare a company for a transaction, a transition. Even when somebody makes a commitment they want to sell to find the right buyers, to build relationships with buyers to make sure the fit is right, it is a process. If we also back up, we believe that even while owners are in the growth phase of that business life cycle, managing a business with the end game in mind can only be good. It would help with ongoing operations, potentially help with ongoing profitability to really appreciate what does my end game need to look like to maximize the selling price.
0: Are there areas that a lot of as you get into a little bit of the weeds of, of how the businesses around how the agencies are currently ran, areas where most often had seen a little bit of neglect or haven't been a, a much of a focus from the agency owner's perspective? Kind of like a uh, hey, listeners, these are the things that we notice that need to get buttoned up the most, focus in this area. Maybe one or two things you can share with us.
1: Sure. In the overarching themes that will back into what are some of the areas to focus on, buyers want to know that the company they're buying is will be sustainable, it will be transferable and scalable. So it'll transfer and grow. Because people will pay more if they believe it's going to grow. Right. So if we back up to those, some key areas are the dependency on the selling owners or shareholders. If the company is overly dependent on someone it's going to put pressure on the offers because buyers will be concerned what happens if to the business if that owner departs after the sale so dependency the company's unique value proposition competitive advantages defendable competitive advantages somebody wants to believe again if it's going to grow what is that unique story? Any areas where you can demonstrate growth. That's why if you go back to year in and year out, growth of the top line, profit margins are so important. Service firms, I mean, ideally the profit is 20% or more of the fee income because margins like that enable buyers to pay back their debt and still see a return on their capital. So when, when we look at those areas, it's the unique value proposition, what could help to assure sustainability, new business process systems to generate leads, all of those areas are so important. And then making sure that the leadership team has incentives to stay, Vietnam stock plans and such. This to me was something that was, uh, even on our end, because
0: I'm, and, and many of us that are listening are in, in similar situations as myself is a lot of the leads or a lot of the contracts that are being won and serviced by our firms are brought in by some of the founders or some of the uh, key people that may or may not stay on. Yeah, sure. That's a unique advantage that that co-founder or the found, one of the founders is driving a lot of leads, but you have to move as far as away. Is there like a, how far they should move away from being that core lead source to where the firm's name itself is driving majority of that business in? Is that something you're like, hey, As you look to transition, you make
1: sure you're not dependent solely, or you're going to be tied up with that team for quite a while, right? You are. And what you described, Nick, of course, easier said than done, because typically the founder of the company, nobody normally can sell their company better than a founder in most situations. So if it can grow and it's not so dependent on him or her, that's a good position to be in. If not, there's, you can still sell your company, but most likely the deal terms would require that you stay with the buyer for two to three years. And those incentives will be there because the percentage of the selling price would be contingent on performance. So there are different ways to get there. As you grow, though, like an agency, a service firm that's doing less than, let's say, a million or $2 million in fee income buyers know that that's typically then pretty heavily dependent on that owner of her owners. Right. With size and infrastructure, it will start to grow and reduce the dependency. So that's where size comes into play. It's not like you have to get to a certain size to sell. You just have to appreciate that you most likely will have to stay on to maximize your selling price. So this is,
0: uh, it's so spot on. We've, and our firm at Structured, we've acquired three core agencies and we've rolled them into we were acting as the platform we're financing ourselves. we're doing the deals ourselves. we're acting as that platform agency and in the process majority of the founders because we are acquiring sub million sub two million EBITDA and at this point we are like hey you as a core founder you do need to stay on like we want your team we want the contracts and we want to make sure that you're able to continue to drive the lead so we think about this too. And, and even when we're hoping, right, we're hoping that the market will be in a great position to eventually exit, let's say, 2024, 2025, if that, if that opportunity presents itself, is there a bad time in the market to be you're like, no, Nick, if you have a good business, there's going to be buyers out there because even just looking at your guys' track record, there was one early April or was, uh, middle of April that just kind of closed on your side. And I'm sitting here going, and this might just be a little bit of a, a negative bias of like, oh, my gosh, the market is not ready for us to be sold or bought. What is your thoughts on this right now? So
1: overall, I and mean, activity is lower down now compared to the middle of 2022 and, and so forth. Interest rates are higher, which does put some pressure on, on offers. There's still plenty of buyers out there that have the resources, the capital to buy companies valued between a million to 15 million. And it, it's just so hard to say I'm going to time it. If yep. the story's good, we're supportive of clients going to market. Now, the flip side, we've had some clients, their billings are down because their clients put them on hold. That's a different story, though, because looking at trends track record, if somebody's trending down right now, unless they really need to sell, then there's a good case to be made, delay, get back to the run rate where you were. If you're trending right, your margins are consistent. We're supportive of clients saying, let's go out and look for offers. In today's market, on our end, we do typically have to look wider and farther and deeper to get the ideal number of offers for our clients to consider. But there's still plenty of M&A activity going on. Overused term, but there's this quote, so much dry powder, which is so true. There's so much capital looking for quality companies, both from strategic buyers, especially from financial buyers, private equity groups and family offices. They have money that they want and need to deploy to get returns for their investors. You've gone through an experience so far, or, or
0: maybe some of your colleagues in the industries, where uh, an American-based company, or maybe even a Canadian-based company, was looking to merge or acquire a european uh an asian australian an offshore type of team is there and we went through this personally when we when we try to acquire an english firm and there was all these tax implications or or just the hard to integrate issues going into this is that is that something that you guys experienced to see as well or yeah you probably looked at the wrong structure is it common for a stateside firm to acquire an
1: offshore firm not common for more experience. It's certainly getting okay. done. And to your point, if you want to play in those arenas, you're going to have to seek out not just the right M&A group, but you need the right tax counsel, local representation in those target cities. It's an added level of expense and complexity. But it's certainly getting done. Yeah, I was I was so curious
0: about this stuff too because we we've considered it. We think it's a, a great way of expansion. We do believe in the buy buy-then-build methodology tremendously. And I think it's, if you already have the clientele, if you already have the employees on it. Look, in 2021, in 2020, our first acquisition, 2022, we did another. In 2023, we did another. And so when we were moving through this, we looked at it very simply like, hey, in the service business, finding employees that understood, that loved, I'll use that term loosely. I don't know if everybody loves working at an agency. It's, It's a grinder for sure. But if you are in a good if you can find a good firm and they've been trained or feel comfortable with being with an agency, then the acquiring of the not only the book of business, but the employees as well is such a great strategy and, and way around it. When you're in the MA process,
1: is that a key driver of that team that's coming with them? For sure. For sure. I mean, culture is, is also a key value driver. Look, it's hard to assess okay. culture just when you're doing an MA transaction because the sellers won't let you too near their employees until you're closer. But just visiting the operations, like you just mentioned, you've done three acquisitions. I'm sure you were trying to pick up on what's the energy level, the vibes, you're looking at glass door ratings, you're trying to meet with their management team. Those are as important sometimes as some of the financial metrics. We did, we spent so much time of trying to get on interviews. I'm like, we are full, we're a
0: fully remote team. And I'm and I'm. I've been wondering this question as well since we've been talking. Before everybody was remote, right? That was like the thing to do. Was the speed of transaction quicker, slower than it is now that most of the teams
1: are operating remotely? It's hard to say. I I not I did not see a drop off. I mean, during the pandemic, we were getting deals done, which was so strange to the M and A world without actually meeting clients in person. Because pre pandemic. M&A work was all about in-person relationships. We were there in the meetings with prospective buyers. Work habits have changed, and it actually has made our lives easier. We don't have to travel around the country for every meeting. I feel that way tremendously, too. I think there,
0: when when we've been so remote for so long and those processes, right now I feel in, inside the agency game, it's more so the internal processes of retention. It's always an acquisition, right? New uh, business is the lifeline of most of them the bloods of our agencies anyways but the processes of doing it online allows us for acquiring such quality talent offshore such quality talent in in regions that we might not have been to before in the MA process in the due diligence process does is it a turn off is it a worry for the acquiring team if an agency has more offshore support that might not be full-time employees they might be full-time contractors but has it ever been a sticking point of like, hey, I'm not
1: really interested in this. I wish the the core employees were all stateside. The key is if they believe those employees, wherever they are located, are going to stay with the company. If you can really demonstrate that that team, stateside or abroad, that there's a reason, you know, whether they're paid well, that they like working, all the same variables that may cause employees to want to stay, as long as you can demonstrate it. And the buyers, during the due diligence, they're gonna try their hardest to assess that.
0: Guys, do me a favor, stop, pause the podcast. If you haven't signed up for the Triple Whale Partner Program, you get up to 20% of all the leads that you pass through. It's an incredible source of revenue. It's extremely important, Hey, if we're diversifying and seeing where we can get some more cash to continue to grow, your business, your agency, it's a great way of doing it, especially with a great partner like Triple Whale. The biggest question that I have is around how this deal is structured. What are the the things that are, now you don't have to go super nitty gritty because I know each deal is different. There's a lot of uniqueness depending on the industry. If you were to look at the value that makes up what that multiple could potentially be, could you give me some hypothetical situations of, you have this much in revenue, it might you have this much contracts coming in or there's, the retention is this. Because we've heard a couple of things, and I'll express that to you first, and I might get some smiles out of you, is when when we were talking to Nee of Tenuity, which Tenue is one of the larger digital firms out there right now, he just did an acquisition of a close friend of ours. And he's like, look, we're always trying to get uh, as close as we can for an employee, a revenue per employee to about a $200,000 a year for revenue per employee. We're looking at at month over month growth, not on January to February, but month over month growth on a year over year look at. It. So, what did January look like of 2022? Did January look like in 2023? What was that growth story? And look, if you're going to have a little bit of a slow quarter or slow year, we need to know why. Did you go through an acquisition? Your cash is a little bit a little bit too tight. Are you uh, trimming some of the fat of the employees? These are the types of things that we've heard in the industry where you can get in the. Eight x, twelve x, fifteen x at the higher EBITDA multiples. But is this is this hearsay? Like this, I'm, I'm coming right to the source here as someone who gets to see things. Well, what you
1: just express on the multiple eight x, ten x, twelve x, owners of service firms, marketing communications agencies, unless they are of a real size that I'll touch on in a minute, they're well, not going to see multiples of eight x, ten x because. Normally, EBITDA does 500000 to $2 million. The the multiple range tends to be in the five to seven range, sometimes higher. Okay. Buyers are buying companies with after tax dollars, unless a company is really growing. And if you pay more than 6X, you're not going to see a return on capital to warrant that risk. So when owners will hear that 10X from others, you really have to say, what type of company were you referencing? Sometimes that would be a technology company or a SaaS company. The multiples are completely different. The, the, the other part is a multiple of what? This is also another thing that mm. it. Um, are you measuring against the trailing 12 months EBITDA, weighted average? In today's market post-pandemic, usually buyers are looking at the trailing 12 months combined with forecasts hopefully reliable budgets moving forward to your point. How do you get on the higher end of that spectrum? Yeah. And we do have deals that have gone over seven X. The keys are, and you and I've touched on some of them, year in and year out growth, margins, that EBITDA margins, a key driver, their margins are north of 25%, 30%. That's going to help you command more dollars. The unique value proposition, if it's a, a strategic fit, that's where you can get above market. But it's got to be with the right buyer and you know, seek out where there's synergies and, and so forth. So some of the value drivers we, we touched on, the other part that you were asking about, there's a lot that goes into how much does that seller truly take home net of taxes at the end of the day. We've been, like in most discussions, focused on the multiple, which translates to price. Working capital is a key term that gets negotiated. You went through with Nick, of course, when you bought companies, but most a lot of sellers believe my balance sheet is my balance sheet. I mean, I've got receivables and cash. Yeah. The realization is experienced, sophisticated buyers are going to say to you, Nick, if I'm going to pay you a multiple of earnings, you have to deliver a company that has adequate working capital. Otherwise, day one, post-closing, I, the buyer, have to put money in to fund operations. So buyers will say, "Deliver a company that has adequate working capital. On average, it's around two months of operating expenses." That doesn't mean cash; it's just current assets, receivables, cash minus payables. So good. This is so good.
0: You're. you're this is. I've been. I, I'm. So, I'm so glad I didn't ask this question first. I wanted people to really get into it. This
1: is great. Thanks so much. Keep going, David. Now, I, I appreciate you encouraging me, but you also, with service firms, if you collect any money in advance, prepayments or media buys, any prepayments work not yet performed, that's treated as debt on the balance sheet. So that has to go to the buyer. So working capital becomes a key variable to negotiate. So you've got the multiple, the working capital, if there's an earnout, how long the earnout is, and will we track the top line or EBITDA? Buyers prefer an earnout that tracks EBITDA because that helps assure a return on capital. Sellers don't like that because there's always a concern: yes. Will I control the P and L statement during the earnout period? So sellers prefer a benchmark against the top line. So th- those are examples of the terms that all impact. The true net after tax proceeds. This has been, and this happened in our last
0: one, the the, the last acquisition we just went through the working capital. Because look, we we thought it was a good deal um, when everything got said and done, and we're looking, we're like, you don't have what you need to cover your last payroll run. That's not the that's not on the buyer side. That's on the seller's side. That's you you should be able to already afford those, like you mentioned, at least two months in the bank. And that, that to me was something that was a little bit shocking because of the loans and some of the debt that that other team had. And look, we at the end of the day, we knew that they had the clientele. We knew that we had the payback period kind of dialed in. So it was a risk that we were willing to take. But some of these contracts, this is something that I think most of the, uh, maybe the firms that are, are selling or, or looking to acquire, when you have a contract and oftentimes in the service business, as I'm sure you know this tremendously as well, it's a, Thirty day, pay us in uh, fifteen days once the once the bill is sent. Right there, that that receivable time is really difficult when you're analyzing cash in the bank from the agency that's about to sell. Right, are you looking at the how much money that is owed to them? For instance, if I have, I'm still waiting to be paid for about two hundred thousand dollars this month. Are you considering that cash that should be paid and might not be yet from the clients as a factor in the multiple? Or you're like, no, Nick, cash in the bank is what's going to impact the multiple. Because it's kind of kind of like if you're doing your taxes, which we fell into this issue too, is it cash on accrual or is it cash in the
1: bank? So what do you describe, Nick? It certainly will impact the working capital calculation. Okay. Not necessarily the multiple. The company has a good method of doing business in terms of their contracts i.e they get paid in advance or their retainers get paid up front that that could help on the multiple because that goes to the the way they do business but what what you described really will come into play on the negotiations around what does that seller leave behind and in your example with if they're not great collecting receivables that's going to impact the working capital calculation that will cost them hard dollars when the working capital, they call it the peg, is established. Good bit of advice would be well, it's not just leading up to a transaction, being all over the process for collecting money will serve that seller well when it's time to sell.
0: Yeah, this is, this. I think this goes so unmentioned because you're like, yo, you know, yeah, we we look at all the invoice, invoices we sent out this month and look at what well, we should be getting cash in and receivables are 45 days late. Oh, we're pushing 60 days late now as the acquiring agency now we're having to come up and cover those costs yeah i'm sure that money will come in god help god help us in this in this time but that that is a definitely something we overlooked on on one of the acquisitions and rather than the other ones as we got into the the higher multiples that's that's crazy i think i think right now i would love to to kind of tap into one more one more thing of wisdom for you before we kind of close this out so i would say some words of encouragement for the crew of everybody listening because People get into this space, and, I, and I've heard this because this is feedback from our audience. I'm doing this because I want to make a bunch of money. I'm doing this because I want to cash flow my lifestyle. I'm doing this because this is a lifestyle business. It doesn't have to be build it to sell. It could be build it to run and enjoy. Well, what do you, what's your opinion when I say that to you? I know as a,
1: as a team that's focused on helping people sell and exit that. No, there, there is a lot to be said about that. It's Your exit plan there's a number of ways to get there. One could be you build it to sell. The, the other is you build it to have a profitable company. You take out enough, hopefully you're taking out enough after a fair market salary to also build wealth. The, the one thing I would say though, to what you just described, Nick, cause I've had a number of people say to me that their plan is just to, to run it and then they'll close their door. Sure. And. That doesn't work because most people they they care about their employees and their clients. You you don't just run it. At some time there has to be some kind of event. If that doesn't mean it's a successful sale. It could be we do a lot to do employee based buyouts. You know you get it to a point and then you structure it so that there's at least a payout to employees. It. Um, now, a lifestyle business is different if it's just a smaller group. That That's not what I'm referencing. But you know, sure. if somebody has you know, a handful or more employees and, and it truly is a company, one way or another, there has to be a transition plan unless the company just closes down. Right, 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 right. And comes out of business. I love it. This was
0: been, I, I was hoping we'd get into these type of details and type of these conversations with somebody that has been there, done that, and, and- you guys have done over a hundred of these things, almost close to two hundred of these things. And I'm extremely yes. grateful for you were very honest and can and you 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 were very, very as a matter of fact, which is beautiful in this space because you know, there's no there's no gain over here. Like you're just share with my, my audience and my information. If anybody is
1: interested in this, where can we find you? How can I get a hold of you, brother? Sure, no, I appreciate it. I mean, Tobinleft.com. There's an info page, or you could email me directly, dtobin at tobinleft.com. I have five partners. Would We'd all, you know, we're happy to talk to owners just to talk about their business in the M&A market. Um, we, we welcome that. Nick, thank you for inviting me on and I enjoyed the
0: time with you. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. We'll see you on the next time. You know where to find us, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. I hope you guys enjoy this great conversation. It's been a long time coming to get someone here that understands our businesses and that understands how what happens when the time is right. And so hopefully when that time is right, we get to have this conversation again with you all. Have a great day.